Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. The court is back hearing arguments and issuing opinions this week, uh, but there's also some other events happening outside of the courtroom. First up, we have some sobering news. Last Friday evening, Justice Clarence Thomas was admitted to the hospital with flu-like symptoms. He remained hospitalized and missed this week's arguments. Obviously, we wish Justice Thomas well, and we're praying for his speedy recovery. We absolutely are. Now, in Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson confirmation news, those hearings are now over, and we will briefly summarize them. But first, Zach, give us a high-level picture. How do you think things look right now for Judge Jackson's chances at confirmation? Well, unless something unexpected happens, she's going to be confirmed. It's simple math. I do think, though, that the hearing has appropriately focused on her judicial philosophy and her record as a judge. I was very happy to see Republican senators not return to the hostility uh, that Democratic senators, unfortunately, have routinely shown to Republican appointees or Republican nominees. Still, uh, Judge Jackson faced justifiably tough questions. So how do you think she did in answering those, GC? Well, a couple things struck me. The first is uh, how good Judge Jackson is at the speaking filibuster. (laughs) Something the senators know a little something about. (laughs) You know, if anything, I think they might have been uh, jealous that she outperformed them in that that role. I I agree. So what did you think about her answers on uh, her judicial philosophy? Well, we got some useful answers and some strange answers. In the past, when asked about her judicial philosophy, she has said that she does not have one. But when asked... During the hearings, she answered that she has a methodology for ensuring her neutrality. Now, whether she doesn't appreciate the difference between a methodology and a philosophy or thinks we don't, I don't know, but it was not one of her finer moments. She did, however, say that she is bound to interpret statutory texts according to their original public meaning. That sounds good. Sounds very good. It does align with a textualist approach. But on the other hand, she hasn't There's always, always a but, you see. <laughs> there's always a but. Uh, she has not always done that as a judge. Uh, and that may have been more talking the talk to get Republicans off her back <laughs> than, uh, than being actually committed to walking that walk. You know, maybe the fact that she at least felt the need to say some of those things that that spoke to a more originalist, textualist approach is in itself some way a triumph for the originalist, textualist movement and approach uh, because, uh, you know, several years ago, I certainly don't think she would have felt uh, the need to to make those statements. No, right. At the very least, if nothing else, no nominee is any longer going to be confident standing up in front of the country and saying, you know, the Constitution means whatever I want it to mean. Well, maybe Elena Kagan was right. We really are all textualist now. In word, if not in deed. I guess time will tell. There aren't any noteworthy orders this week. Uh, we did get several opinions. GC, what's on the docket? Well, first up, we had the Wisconsin Legislature versus the Wisconsin Election Commission. This is a 7-2 to two per curiam opinion. The court reversed a decision by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which had upheld the state's new redistricting maps. The state's new maps were drawn by the governor during litigation before the Wisconsin Supreme Court over an old set of maps. His new maps created one additional new majority black district. 
Now, the only justification that the governor gave for the racial gerrymander was that there is now a, and I quote, sufficiently large and compact population of black residents. The problem is you can't racially gerrymander unless, like other race-based policies, you comply with strict scrutiny. The state Supreme Court upheld the racial gerrymander without doing the required strict scrutiny analysis, so the Supreme Court sent it back with instructions to do it again. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by Justice Kagan, dissented, saying that existing precedent on this issue was, and I quote, hazy at best. Next up is the Ramirez case. This was an eight to one decision by Chief Justice John Roberts with Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Brett Kavanaugh concurring and Justice Clarence Thomas dissenting. In this decision by the chief, the court held that the petitioner was likely to prevail in his claim that barring his spiritual advisor from touching him and praying out loud during his execution would violate the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which is more commonly referred to as ARLUPA. The court held that Texas's restrictions were not the least restrictive means of furthering its compelling interests. Now, Justice Thomas, he did dissent uh, from the chief's opinion, and he argued that Ramirez's claims were either procedurally barred or did not warrant equitable relief. He noted that Ramirez had, quote, manufactured more than a decade of delay to evade the capital sentence and made no effort to resolve proceedings expeditiously. Justice Thomas also concluded that Ramirez had failed to exhaust his administrative remedies as required by the Prison Litigation Reform Act, the PLRA. Last up, we have Houston Community College, which was a unanimous decision by Justice Gorsuch in which the court held that a member of a board of trustees of a community college can't bring an action against the board uh, for violating his First Amendment rights based on a verbal censure order that the board handed down. During the plaintiff's tenure on the board, he had frequently made public statements criticizing the board and claiming that it regularly violated its own rules and procedures. And in response to that, the board censored the plaintiff, uh, just a verbal reprimand essentially. And, the, and he sued saying that that violated his First Amendment rights. The Supreme Court said no. Uh, for one thing, there's a very long history extending to the colonial times of committees censoring their members. And no one has ever before claimed that censure violates free speech rights. What's more, censure is not an adverse action. It is itself speech and just the sort of speech that public officials are expected to shoulder. Critically, the censure neither interfered with the plaintiff's ability to do his job or denied him any of the privileges of the office. Next up, we have this week's interview with Jeff Wall. We're pleased to be joined today by Jeff Wall, an experienced Supreme Court advocate who currently serves as the head of Sullivan and Cromwell's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. It's great to be here. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Now, before we dive into your legal career, I have a background question I, I like to ask folks. What made you want to be a lawyer? I didn't know I did want to be a lawyer for uh, a long time, Zach. I mean, I, um, I studied philosophy in college, and I thought maybe I might want to be a philosophy professor. Mm. Um, and I toyed with that for a while, but um, the more I looked at uh, how long it would take to to get a PhD, uh, the more I started to, to think about law school. And there were just a handful of other reasons. And, and I ended up in, in law school. I had done moot court and debate in high school and college. And so law school ended up being um, you know, a fairly natural fit. Now, you attended law school at the University of Chicago. And I saw somewhere that while you were in law school, you wanted to be a, a law professor. Is that true? It, it is true. So uh, I, you know, maybe we'll 
get to this, but I, I taught high school after college uh, for a couple of years. I loved teaching and I thought obviously I might teach philosophy, but then even when I pivoted toward law, I thought I might teach law. And I was so lucky to end up at the University of Chicago. I know some people don't have a great experience in law school, but I did. I loved the environment. I loved the people. I made uh, just great lifetime friends. And so it was a it was a wonderful intellectual environment. Um, and I did go into it uh, thinking that I that I might want to teach. What made you change your mind? I worked at law firms in the summer, um, really at the time because I needed the money, but I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Um, I did moot court uh, as a 3L, and I was fortunate to make the final in front of this all-star panel that included Justice Scalia, and it was an incredible experience to argue in in, in front of him and the rest of the panel. And and so those things made me think that, that I might really enjoy practicing, um, particularly appellate litigation. And then I clerked for Judge Wilkinson, and um, that was a terrific experience. But, you know, he was somebody who really came at the law as a, a true legal intellectual, but who uh, felt that legal scholarship had really become largely divorced from the work that judges do. And that sort of mm-hmm. opened my eyes that if someone uh, who was such a well-respected, you know, prominent judge didn't have a lot of use for legal scholarship, it, it really made me think that, um, you know, look, am I going to be one of the handful of people out there that's really having an effect on the law from the academy? And um, I thought I probably wouldn't be. And so uh, all of that and the fact that I'd enjoyed practicing more really led me toward uh, toward practice and, and away from being a professor. I still wanted to teach and did do some teaching when I was younger. I still miss that. Um, but I, I don't think I, I, I missed my calling by not becoming a professor. Mm. Now, you said you did some teaching when you were younger. I'm assuming you adjuncted at a, uh, a law school somewhere? Yes. What was then George Mason uh, and uh, a senior partner at the firm where I was working had been teaching ad law in federal courts with um, with uh, an associate at the firm. And the associate went off to the U.S. attorney's office. And unfortunately, the partner, Ed Warren, who's been a wonderful mentor of mine over the years, uh, Ed asked me to um, to join him in, in teaching those courses. So I taught administrative law and, and federal courts for a few years at at uh, what was then George Mason. It was a great experience. Uh, I loved it. And I gave it up when I went into the SG's office the first time back in 2008. But I, I still miss it. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, down the road at some point when uh, my kids are older and I have a little more time, uh, I think I'd, I'd like to adjunct again. Oh, that's excellent. Now, you mentioned you clerked for Judge Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience or, and what it was like? It was terrific. Uh, you know, you hear from people sometimes that they have uh, difficult clerkships or you know bad experiences with their judge. And uh, my my experience, my co-clerk's experience, I think was the exact opposite. He's a he's a wonderfully kind and gracious man, and as I say, a true uh, legal intellectual. He'd been on the Fourth Circuit for 20 years by that point because he came on um, in the early to mid-1980s as a pretty young man. So I'm not actually sure what we did for him uh, that was of any help because he was <laughs> fully self-sufficient uh, as, a, as a judge. But, uh, but as a young lawyer, 
it, it would have been hard to uh, to ask for a better experience. Uh, he was. Uh, he was, he was, and has been, uh, for now almost two decades, a uh, uh, a wonderful mentor and, and dare I say, even a friend. Excellent. Did judge Wilkinson have any special uh, traditions with his clerks or do you have any special memories from your time clerking with him? Well, I have a lot of special memories, but, uh, one thing that he used to like to do, I don't know if they still do it. <clears throat> is um, he would run with his clerks every day mm. at the lunch hour. So you would work in the morning and then you would go run on the, uh, like the local high school track, uh, three miles at lunch. Oh and goodness. then you would often <laughs> come back to chambers and have lunch together. And, and, um, and you would, you'd work for the afternoon. And, you know, at the time it was, I, I loved that time with the judge and with my co-clerks. It was really a, a no holds barred, free speech zone. I mean, we used to argue and debate all sorts of things during the run on the track. Now there were times where on a 90 degree day in Charlottesville, I would, you know, come back to the office sweating buckets and think to myself, why do we do this? But as I've gotten (laughs) older, I've realized how hard it is to maintain that balance between work and exercise when things get busy. Mm -hmm. And I've really come to respect, uh, how, consistent he was in maintaining that uh, balance because he was then and still is an incredibly hard worker, but he always found time for it. And one other thing that he did at the end of the clerkship, I, and again, I, I don't know if he still does it, but he took, uh, he took me and, uh, and the, the other clerks to dinner at the end of the year at the end at Little Washington. And we drove out there together. We had dinner together and drove back to Charlottesville um, as sort of his parting thank you for our work during the year. Mm-hmm. And that's a memory that will always stick with me because it, it was such a wonderful uh, gesture, something that he didn't have to do to take time away from his own family, but, but gave us a, a really special memory. Excellent. Now, after clerking for Judge Wilkinson, you went on and you clerked for Justice uh, Clarence Thomas at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, what was that experience like? I, that year, Zach, it was just um, it was it was magical. I mean, I was uh, you know first you're you're walking into this imposing building every day. You have an opportunity to to work on and and see play out uh, cases that um, are obviously among the, the most important and most difficult. I loved the other clerks. It, you know, I think uh, in, a, in a good year, all of the clerks get along. I think ours was a great year. Um, I made friends um, from all different chambers who have been lifelong friends. And, uh, and then on top of that, to clerk for somebody who was as warm and who was as engaged as Justice Thomas. And a lot of the outside world doesn't see that. You're just now beginning to see, as he's asking questions at oral argument in the newer format now, how engaged he is with the cases. But but with us as clerks, he was engaged both on the cases, but also in our lives and what was going on with us and with our families. And it was just such a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful experience. I look back on that year with incredible fondness. Are there any special memories or stories that stand out to you from your time uh, working with Justice Thomas? <laughs> I mean, dozens, but uh, I guess one, he has a tradition where he takes his clerks to Gettysburg. Mm. And I had never been to Gettysburg. 
and uh, and he, he said so you know he has this uh, this coach and that he drives and so you know you and the other clerks and the justice pile on to his large coach and he drives you out to Gettysburg and there's a ranger there who takes you around the battlefield and talks to you about the the history of it and it was uh, it was a really moving experience I'll never forget mm-hmm. it. And then at the end of the year, he and Justice Scalia would always do lunch together with their clerks um, at AVs, you know, Justice Scalia's uh, favorite restaurant uh, down what used to be down uh, on New York Avenue, not too far from the court. Mm. And um, I'll never forget there sitting there watching the two of them at that lunch. I mean, these two uh, great jurists who you know were people um, that I, you know, sort of looked up to and followed in law school and there they are debating cases um, and you know it, it had been a, a a term where they had not always agreed on all the big cases um, uh, rage uh, the commerce clause case mm-hmm. was our term and that was one where they hadn't agreed and um, it just they they were going back and forth on a number of topics and watching them do that it was just it was a memory that I will that I'll never forget excellent now, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about your time in the Solicitor General's office. I know you first worked in the office from 2008 to 2013 as an assistant to the Solicitor General. So I was hoping you could explain to our listeners what the different roles are within the office and what your experiences, experience was like as an assistant to the Solicitor General. It's a very small office relative to most of the federal government. I mean, you know, you, you've only got about 22 full-time lawyers and then the, the Bristos who do a one-year fellowship, usually after a court of appeals clerkship. So the line attorneys in the SG's office are the, called the assistants to the Solicitor General. There are 16 of them. That's the job that I came into in 2008 as the most junior assistant in the office. And then you have uh, what used to be four, what is now five deputies. Four of them are career. Only one is a political appointee, the principal deputy. And then you have the SG. Um, so 16 assistants, five deputies in the SG, and then you know, four to five Bristos uh, on top of that. So it's a very um, small office. And it was an incredible experience for me. I joined after having been an associate at a firm here for about three years off the clerkships. And one of the reasons I went was because I, I wanted to get more uh, experience up on my feet. And I had argued in state court at that point, but I'd never had an argument in federal court. They're just mm-hmm. – they can be difficult to come by as a junior associate. And so here I am in the SG's office and within uh, you know six months – I'm arguing a case in the Supreme Court, and that was mm-hmm. the first time I had ever argued in uh, in federal court. And how'd it go? <laughs> well, the the argument itself was a little uh, rocky, and it's a it's a great story. <laughs> but uh, but we we ended up uh, we ended up prevailing. But what's funny about it is that um, you, you know the the argument itself was uh, was pretty rough. And uh, so I didn't really know how the case was going to come out, although I really did think we were right. And Justice Thomas has lunch with his clerks pretty often. And some month or two after that, uh, I had lunch with him and a number of other clerks. And as we were leaving lunch, he said, hey, Jeff, could you kind of hang back? And he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, look, I'm not going to talk about the substance of the case at all. But all I want to tell you is that no matter how it comes out, 
uh, I'm really proud of you. You can't, you can't count these things by whether you win or you lose. That's not what it's about. But, you know, you went in there and, and you did the best you could do. And, uh, you know, you'll live to fight another day. But I'm, I'm really proud of you uh, for, for what you've been doing. And I left lunch so dejected, Zach, because mm. I was convinced that we had lost. And the decision came out. It was uh, unanimous. We won. Justice Thomas wrote the opinion. And about five minutes after the opinion announcement, he called me on my cell phone and he said, I got you. I, I punked you. You should have seen the look on your face. You were lower than a snake's belly. Uh, and it goes to show, he has a great sense of humor. And he did. He, had, he, he, he completely got me. <laughs> I imagine that was funnier, uh, looking back on it. <laughs> it's a lot funnier in hindsight. Yeah. Now you later, uh, worked in the SG's office as the number two in the office, the principal deputy, uh, solicitor general under, uh, Noel Francisco, who's the SG at the time, at the time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what that experience was like? It was wonderful. I feel so, uh, indebted to Noel, um, and others for giving me the opportunity to to come back and do that. I mean, I, when I was down the hall as an assistant, Zach, I used to kind of think like, well, how easy it must be to, you know, to be Neil Katyal or Leandra Kruger or Sri Srinivasan. You know, you get these wonderful drafts from folks in the office and then you get to go up and argue big cases. And um, it, it always seemed uh, so <laughs> glamorous compared to life uh, down in the trenches as an assistant. And then I actually got the job and realized, uh, as, as, you know, now Judge Srinivasan has said, to me before, it's a lot harder than it looks. Mm. Uh, and I suspect Brian Fletcher's finding that out right now. Um, I think I worked harder as the, as the, the principal deputy than I did, um, as an assistant. But, you know, I've often said, I think it's the best legal job in the government. You get to, uh, you get to be involved in all these cases and you get to argue incredibly interesting cases in the court. But uh, when anything goes wrong, people always mm. blame the SG. They don't blame you. Uh, and so it's <laughs> sort of all the fun with uh, a very limited amount of, of, of the responsibility. It's, um, it's such a special office, Zach. I mean, the, the standard of professionalism, I mean, almost perfectionism that pervades that office, the institutional experience of the deputies who've been around for decades. It's, um, I, I've never worked any place like it. It really, um, I think everyone who comes into the office, their performance and the standard they hold themselves to is elevated just by virtue of the company. Uh, and it's, it really is just a, a, a special place. Now you served as acting solicitor general twice, once while Noel was waiting to be confirmed. And then again, after he left the office, uh, what was that experience like, uh, heading up the SG's office? I mean, it's an incredible honor, but I, I was lucky to work there once. I mean, to come back twice is, is really, uh, you know, kind of beyond your wildest dreams. And then, uh, to have the opportunity for short periods of time, uh, but you know, uh, important periods of time where where there was a lot going on and there were challenges. Um, it was surreal. I mean, I you know, you mm. you I I had worked for people like Ed Needler and Malcolm Stewart, um, you know, uh, deputies in the office who were um, uh, brilliant, 
I mean, the, the, among the best lawyers I've ever worked with. And, and here I am now conferring with them and sometimes debating with them on what positions the office uh, should take. And there's no way to describe that other than to say it was, um, it was a little uh, surreal to find myself in a position where, uh, you know, I, I was, um, I was helping to lead the office alongside uh, people that had been my bosses and people I had looked up to and continued to look up to, frankly. So uh, mm-hmm. it was, but it, it was, it was a, it was a tremendous honor. And as I say, I'm very, I'm indebted to, um, to Noel and, and Attorney General Sessions for, for giving me that opportunity. Mm. Are there any traditions or facts about the SG's office that might surprise our listeners? I think the main thing is just how hard the office works. I mean, it's, I think sometimes there's a perception from the outside that this is the ivory tower of all ivory towers. It's just a handful of people working on merits cases in the Supreme Court and, and, and boy, Zach, nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. I mean, there are merits cases, but that's, just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you have all of the oppositions to cert, um, and those briefs number at least in the high hundreds, if not in the low um, thousand uh, every uh, year, mostly criminal cases. You have all of the invitation briefs. You have the appeal recommendation process, because as you know, uh, most components in the federal government can't take appeals on their own. They need the Solicitor General's permission, and there's a a fairly um, involved process that involves a lot of memo writing, including inside the office, to enable the Solicitor General to to make a determination, intervention uh, decisions on cases that come to the office. Mm. And then you have, of course, all of the consulting work that the office does on lower court litigation and things that may end up even on the emergency docket. And that consulting has traditionally maybe not been uh, the largest part of what the office does. But in recent years, it seems to have become more and more a part of what the office does. So it's it's no longer just the case. And part of this is the rise of the emergency docket that you know, cases are sort of litigated in the lower courts and then they end up in, in OSG. It is now more and more the case that OSG is integrated into the decision-making process, even at an early stage stage in important cases or ones where the government may face injunctive relief. And so um, all of that together combines for a really tremendous workload. And um, I've worked at two pretty demanding law firms. And I have to say that I think um, if you just kept track of hours, um, I think I probably worked harder during my stints in the SG's office than I uh, I have in even in private practice. I mean, yeah. it's the workload is tremendous, and I think that's uh, something that that maybe folks don't always uh, appreciate from the outside how hard the people in that uh, in that office work, mm. you know, virtually year round. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, just a few seconds ago about the consulting work and the SG's office getting involved in some lower court cases. And I wanted to ask you about that because I know while you were at the SG's office, uh, there were two high-profile cases uh, that you argued in the uh, lower circuit courts. Uh, there's the, I believe, the travel ban case in the Ninth Circuit and then the Flynn case in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, can you tell us about that? And uh, is that common for someone from the SG's office to actually argue in the circuit courts? So I also did the Puerto Rico case mm-hmm. in the First Circuit, the one that ended up in the court um, uh, the the next year on the the oversight and management board, 
Um, it's not common, uh, but it does happen from time to time where you have uh, important cases that seem likely uh, headed to the Supreme Court. And for some reason or another, it makes sense to have somebody from the SG's office argue. So it, it doesn't go on often, but uh, but it does happen. And, and I can think at least of those three instances of as, as times where I, I did it. Mm. Do you know, has anyone from the SG's office ever argued in a federal district court, in a trial court, in anticipation of uh, the litigation uh, going up to the Supreme Court quickly? It's much rarer, but it does happen. I'll, in fact, I'll give you one example, um, not even federal district court. Uh, there was a, an important Puerto Rico-related matter in the Court of Federal Claims, mm. and Morgan Ratner was an assistant in the SG's office, and I asked her to help and, and get involved in, in that. And um, she actually ended up arguing it in the Court of Federal Claims. And I felt pretty bad about it because by the time the hearing rolled around, Morgan was, uh, I think, nine and a half months pregnant. Mm. And the hearing went for hours. And so I think she was up on her feet arguing for something like three hours oh while, uh, while you know, uh, like I say, over nine months pregnant. Mm. And so um, it, it doesn't happen often. But again, there are instances in uh, in federal district court or there, even uh, the court of federal claims, where somebody from the office will go in and um, and argue. Mm. Now, you've argued, I believe, uh, around thirty cases before the Supreme Court uh, at this point in your career. Are there any particular cases or memories uh, that stand out to you? There are a number, but I uh, I'll pick two you've never heard of, Zach. Okay. Um, the first was Eisenstein. That was my very first one. And uh, I, I say that for, for younger lawyers because I was – again, I had never argued in federal court. And I was so nervous that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't eat um, or sleep. Mm. And so I didn't have much for dinner the night before. I couldn't sleep at all. I got up at about 3.30 in the morning and went into the SG's office and into the conference room. I was there by 4.30 in the morning, and I just practiced for <laughs> four or five mm. hours before heading over to the court. I couldn't eat breakfast at all. So I argued. I hadn't had anything to eat, not much anyway, in almost a day. I hadn't slept at all. Um, and, um, and then I went out and argued. And that got a lot better as time mm. went on. You know, by the fourth or fifth or sixth argument, I was fine and could, you know, stick to my normal sure. routine. But uh, but it's just by way of saying that if you get really nervous, uh, that's okay. It happens to everybody, but it does get a lot better over time. Judge Wilkinson used to say that it's fine if you have butterflies uh, in your stomach as long as you can get them to fly in formation. <laughs> and that's the that's the trick. And the second was a case called Barber versus Thomas. It was one of it was a very early argument. I think it was probably my third, and um, it was about how you calculate good time credit for federal prisoners that allows them to get release early. Um, and it was a somewhat complicated case. And in the first few minutes of the argument, Justice Breyer and I had this back and forth about the right way to to do the math, and um, and I. I I think I sort of sorted out some confusion. And then later in the argument, Justice Stevens, who was uh, clearly not buying what I was selling, said, uh, well, you know, counsel, this seems pretty complicated. Uh, you know, it seems like the other approach is clearer, and why wouldn't we just go with that? And I said, uh, Justice Stevens, it's not that hard. Justice Breyer and I just got it in the first five minutes. And 
I meant it as a lighthearted jab at Justice Stevens. It was meant to just be a, a, a joke. And in hindsight, I realize how dangerous mm. that was and why people tell you never to use humor in the court. But in the moment, I got lucky and it played because as soon as I said it, Justice Scalia said, Justice Breyer got it? Whoa. <laughs> and then Justice Stevens said, well, he's a lot smarter than I am. And then, you know, Justice Kennedy made a joke and the argument went on and, uh, and I thought it went well and we did end up winning. Um, and that gave me a lot of confidence, uh, going forward that I, you know, I should trust my instincts as an advocate and that there are things, uh, at times that I should do from the lectern or, or that my argument style isn't the same as everybody else's. And so, you know, you have to, I think the lesson there is just, you know, you have to be who you are as an advocate and you see so many wonderful people um, in the Supreme Court and elsewhere who have completely different styles. Some are heaters and some are coolers and, and you really just have to, uh, you have to be who you are as an advocate. Mm. Would you describe yourself as a heater or a cooler? Uh, I think I'm on the, the heater end of the, the <laughs> spectrum. The office at its holiday party gives out awards for, uh, for the sort of the, 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 uh, the argument where one was most a heater and the one where mm. one was most a, a cooler. Um, and I won the heat miser award <laughs> in the, the year I left the office. So at least my colleagues would put me on that end of the spectrum. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I know you're now uh, in charge of the uh, Supreme Court and appellate practice section at Sullivan and Cromwell. How has that experience been and how is it different uh, from your time arguing on behalf of the United States? It's great. I mean, as I say, I like practicing. I know not everyone uh, who's tried private practice has enjoyed it, but I really do. And what I, I think I love most right now is um, the group of people I get to work with. Um, I was able to convince Morgan Ratner to leave the SG's office and, and come join us. And Judd Littleton is here, who's someone I recruited the last time I was at the firm. And then we hired three folks off the Supreme Court this year from different chambers, uh, Leslie Arfa and Zoe Jacoby and Dan Richardson. They're all fantastic um, and so it's a wonderful group of people that I get to see um, and work with every day. And that's my, my favorite thing about it. I, it has, it's similar in some ways to the SG's office and different in others. I mean, one difference, of course, is that as Don Verrilli once told me, you know, the SG's office is this kind of uh, wonderful self-functioning machine. And your job when you come in as in any kind of leadership role is just not to mess it up. Mm. Um, and private practice is very different right now. It's an incredibly dynamic legal environment. There's much about firms and practice and legal culture that's changing. And of course, building a practice is itself a sort of entrepreneurial endeavor. Mm. So that's very different from coming into an institution like OSG. But there are things that are the same. I mean, one of the things that I love about Sullivan and Cromwell is that it has really tried to protect and guard its culture, even amidst all of this change. Um, and that's very much like uh, OSG. Mm. And 
I, I have the same challenge, some of the same challenges now I had before. I mean, one of the things in the SG's office is you end up saying, why didn't you get us involved earlier? <laughs> we could have been helpful. You didn't have to wait this long. Um, and I still, with clients uh, now, just like when I was in the government, spend a lot of time trying to convince them to think of us not as appellate lawyers who come in on the back end or who help with some issue down the road, but as counselors. Mm-hmm. Not a call of last resort when uh, when you're already in uh, a tough spot, but an early call to try to keep you out of that um, tough spot. And some of the most fulfilling work that I do now is counseling clients, trying to help them before things become um, a problem. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And I have a final question for you, Jeff. And it's a question we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Uh, that's tough, Zach. I mean, um, I'll give you two. I, I, it would it'd be down to um, – the first would be Byron White. I'm mm. a huge sports fan. And the opportunity to talk to him about not just law but you know being the first pick in the draft and playing days in the NFL would be tough to, to pass up. And the other, I'm sure it's an answer you get all the time, is would be Robert Jackson mm-hmm. uh, because of, of the way his presence hung over the office of the Solicitor General figuratively but also literally. I mean for the entire time I was an assistant, if you walked into what is the reception area in, in OSG, his, it was his huge portrait that was up above the – the mantle place. He literally looked out on the office for the entire time I was there. You felt his presence. He was the only one, as you know, to be SG and AG and then and mm. join the court. Um, it was his speech to the U.S. attorneys that uh, that was read every you know every year or twice a year when they trained AUSAs. And so mm-hmm. his um, his presence. Uh, animated or suffused the department and in particular the SG's office. So um, it would be tough to pass up uh, a conversation with uh, with him. I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I would figure it out between those two. Excellent. Well, they are both excellent uh, choices. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you can come back again in the future. Thanks, Zach. This has been great. Great. Take care. All right, Zach, are you ready for trivia? No, but let's do it. (laughs) One of these days, Zach, you're going to say yes and blow me away. (laughs) But that day is not today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With the possibility that Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson will become the third Justice Jackson on the Supreme Court, I figured we'd play the SCOTUS name game. What do you think? You think Game Show Network will pick us up? (laughs) (laughs) Not likely. (laughs) Let's do it. All right. Question number one. Who were the two previous Justices Jackson? Bonus points if you can name one of their most famous opinions. Well, I will be happy if I get the base question without the bonus points correct. Uh, But I actually know this. Uh, Obviously, Robert Jackson. Of course. uh, I think so far is probably the most well-known Justice Jackson. But before him, there was actually another Justice Jackson, Justice Howell Jackson. That's correct. Can you name a famous decision or opinion of either of them? So I remember – the reason I remember the first Justice Jackson, he actually wrote a fairly uh, 
for me at least, memorable opinion on income taxation, uh, where he argued that it was constitutional, but the other justices uh, obviously disagreed with him, and that's why we today have the uh, 16th Amendment uh, yes, to the Constitution. That's right. Uh, Howell Edmonds Jackson, he's not very well known because he only served for two years, but he is quite famous actually for the dissent in Pollock versus Farmers that's Alone. That's Yes, he would have uh, uh, said that the Constitution, without an amendment, allows an income tax. As for Robert Jackson, one of his more famous opinions was uh, he dissented in Korematsu, the famous case that said that the government could intern Japanese Americans in camps. Well, there's so much you could pick from, GC. Obviously, his time on the court, his time as attorney general, his time as solicitor general. Uh, he's certainly authored uh, many famous opinions. And don't forget the uh, famous speech uh, that Jeff just mentioned as well. Uh, so I think there's uh, a lot that you could certainly pick from for uh, Justice Robert Jackson. Well, well done, Zach. You got both points and one bonus point. So well whoa, done. Whoa, 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 whoa. I think uh, – I, listen, I don't know about that math, GC. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a history major, but I think I should get both uh, bonus points here. OK. Yeah, fine. I'll, get, I'll give you both. Right, I'll give you all both. Right. <laughs> See, all right. This is why I'm hesitant to do trivia, GC, <laughs> this, uh, this quirky math that goes on. <laughs> all right. Question number two. Which of the three Jacksons, Howell, Robert, or Katanji, wrote the following? Quote, any lawyer worth his salt will tell a – criminal suspect to make no statement to the police under any circumstances. <laughs> well, that was actually Robert Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew once you brought up the uh, the guide to being a prosecutor that you would know that quote. <laughs> but yes, that was Justice Robert Jackson. I get credit for that, right? Absolutely. All right. All right. All right. Question three. The three Jacksons had very different law school experiences. Which of them spent the least amount of time in law school? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I am going to guess, and this is a guess, uh, Robert Jackson, because I think he was actually one of our last Supreme Court justices not to have a law degree. You are correct. Uh, actually, both Howell and Robert Jackson uh, only spent a year in law school, but okay. Robert Jackson did a program where he tested out of the first year and then did the second year and got a certificate of completion, but no degree. Okay. Howell got his law degree in one year. So they both spent one year. But I'm going to give you half credit. Here is that tricky math again. <laughs> uh, GC, we're going to go sign up for uh, a Khan Academy class after this. <laughs> uh, All right. Which is not an endorsement. <laughs> but well done. All right, final question. Besides sharing a name with the two Justices Jackson, Judge Jackson may, by marriage, be related to a famous Supreme Court justice. Do you know which one? I do not. You, got, you stumped me on this one, GC. Well, it's fair because uh, even, even I don't have a solid answer on this. But according to some uh, websites of perhaps dubious credibility, <laughs> <laughs> Judge Jackson's husband— Such as? <laughs> Uh, uh, the Fifth Amendment, I think, might apply in this situation, so I'm going to claim it, and you can litigate it later. I'm glad you're taking Robert Jackson's advice. <laughs> uh, it may be Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, it looks to be the case that her husband actually is uh, related to Justice Holmes. Oh, very interesting. And I, I do want to know uh, where you're getting this uh, dubious information from. <laughs> Well, well done with trivia, GC. That was uh, that, that was very interesting. Well done to you, Zach. Well, thank you. And uh, I am going to ask for an independent third party to verify my score. Uh, so, <laughs> anyone listening, please feel free. 
Uh, but with that, that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.